Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Fitting. I hadn't thought about it until just now singing Blessed Assurance. And it's a song I grew up with in the church I grew up in. And the refrain that stuck with me all my life, and I still love, is the part where it says, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. It's fitting because we're, we're starting a new study today, and this is a song that has carried for generations. And our study is going to look at some of the things that we're supposed to pass along, that are meant to be passed along from generation to generation in the church. We're going to start a study uh, where we're going, to, we're going to move through three books in the New Testament very quickly. They're short books. They're three letters. They're all written by Paul, and they're all written to young pastors leading young fledgling churches. And in this day and age, uh, when this is written, the church didn't have church history. They didn't have things that had been passed along to them. And so Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy in Ephesus and a young man named Titus on the island of Crete, and he's writing to them to give them instruction for the church and encouragement and to stir up their hope because this is the first generation of church. They don't know anything. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. And when these letters begin, they begin in the same way. First Timothy starts, Paul says, and it's again in Second Timothy, again in Titus, he says, this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you. And he's meaning to tell them, I'm not writing based on my authority and my ideas and preferences about what your church should do, but I'm an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. It is his authority that carries the message I'm here writing today. And then he writes to them in 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. 2 Timothy, to Timothy, my beloved son in the faith. And then to Titus, Titus chapter 1 verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, because this is the kind of relationship that, that Paul has with Timothy and Titus. They're family, and Paul has been a spiritual parent for both of these guys. They have known him. He has known them intimately and poured his life out for them, helping them to grow up. You'll remember the story of Paul and Timothy in Acts 16. Paul is on his missionary journey, his second time to Timothy's hometown, and he sees young Timothy who's grown in faith because of, of the faith being passed down from his mom and his grandmother, and he has come to be a person who worships Jesus Christ. And Paul goes, I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me on my missionary journey. I want to disciple you. I want to mentor you. I want to do gospel work with you. And then in Acts 20, he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to lead the young fledgling churches that are popping up all throughout the region. Titus is similar. Titus is a guy who's mentioned uh, 12, 13 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are in 2 Corinthians because that's one of the major spots that Titus served with Paul. If you look at 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that he'd come to a time in his ministry where he was discouraged, he was disheartened. And then Titus showed up and Paul's heart was made full again. He was full of encouragement. That's the kind of person Titus was. He probably had the gift of encouragement, but he was discouraged before Titus coming. When Titus comes, Paul says, let's go and get him. And Titus is a guy who worked in Corinth with Paul. He worked on the island of Crete with Paul. He's a guy who also is described as having taken up a collection and carried it to a hurting church in Jerusalem and, and helped to meet the practical needs of a church that was in dire straits at the time. So Timothy is in Ephesus. 
Titus has now been sent by Paul to lead the churches in Crete. These churches are in places where the gospel isn't really welcome. Uh, They are marginalized for the way that they live their life, the values that they hold. They really don't know what they're doing. No books have been written on how to church. And so Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, I want to show you two verses that kind of will anchor us and help us to be really clear on why, the why Paul is writing to these two guys. The first one's in 1 Timothy 3. He writes to Timothy and says, in case I'm delayed, I write to you so that, so we know this is exactly why he's writing, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, I'm writing to you so you will know in Ephesus how to church. You'll know what churching is. I'm I'm telling you how to order, not just so that you can make it a week, but so that you'll have a church that endures through whatever may come in your days. And in Titus, he writes him a, a similar message. It's a reminder. He says, this is the reason I left you in Crete. It's not because I didn't love you. It's not because I was done with you. It's because you have a task. You have a job. You have a mission. I left you there so that you would set in order, same kind of message, set in order what remains, the Christians all throughout Crete, the fledgling churches, that you would be able to organize them and help them to function and to live and to survive and not just survive, only to survive, but to be a church that truly prevails in a place that really one pastor said it's kind of like Tortuga in in, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. If you look at Titus chapter 1, Paul says there's a a prophet in in Crete that says uh, the the Cretans, they're always liars, full of evil, and they are always drunkards. So they, they lay around and just the rich are rich and lazy and are awful, and they oppress other peoples. And Paul's commentary on that is that prophet was dead right. That's exactly how they are all throughout Crete. And so Paul's writing to these guys, and this is their job, to Titus and to Timothy. Their job is to help to organize the church in some way that they would be able to survive and sustain and prevail. And what that's going to require from them is being a people who are discipling one another. And these two young pastors are going to have to disciple the early Christians. They're going to encourage the leaders to begin to form biblical values for the way they view and the way they do life. They're going to have to raise up leaders and some kind of structure that is God-ordained and that will sustain them through whatever they may face, not just in their day, but some things that will carry on and still be done today. And so my goal as we walk through this study, instead of going verse by verse through these three books, I'm going to try to collate these three letters from Paul and, and together look at the themes that he passes on to these early churches so that they and we, regardless of the times or the culture shifts or the generational changes that come, that we would be a church that would always remain committed to Jesus Christ and the, the gospel that he brought into this world, that we would always be submitted to the word of God as the standard for how we view and do life, and so that his message of grace, the story of Jesus saving people would be transmitted through our lips and through our, our lives. And so if you grab your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 2. What I want to do is start with something very, very practical. And as you're finding that, I want to talk to you about coaching soccer 
Um, I had a very short run as a soccer coach here in Plano. This is my, my first team. Uh, the kids had a lot of fun. You can tell we're having fun right there. I'm having fun. Um, I don't think we had a winning record. In fact, I'm sure of it. Um, 6U soccer, and, and you, if you've watched Littles play soccer, you know it's a mess. I mean, it's an absolute mess, isn't it? And, and the kids are running, and, and some of them are kicking the ball, and some of them are kicking the air and falling on the ground, and others are kicking each other. And they all run as a, a clump and chase the ball wherever it goes, and it's absolute mad chaos. And most of my kids, not only was it their first time to play soccer, It was their first time for any kind of organized sport at all. So they just had no framework for what we were going to do out there. And as a coach of 6U, you don't want to overcomplicate some things. And if you've you've seen it and you've experienced it, you know, like they're not going to remember it. They're not going to get it. So I came up with three rules that I would hammer at every practice and before every game. And every time the whistle blew, then we got a water break or we got a halftime. It's like the same three things you just say over and over again. Rule number one you got to run the right way, right? And it's so simple, but you've watched it. The game starts, and finally the ball pops out of the cluster of kids, and one kid takes off after it, and he's like so excited, and he's chasing it, and he's kicking it, and he's going, and half the people are shouting, and yay, and half the people are booing, but he doesn't realize it's the wrong people cheering, and he's going the wrong direction, So we would always say, which way are you going? Which goal are you kicking on? Which way are we going? And you'd make them point. I want to see that you know the right way to run. That was rule number one, and we'd hammer it all all the time. The second rule was don't leave the field while the game is still going on, (laughs) which is critically important. I had one moment where my goalkeeper, I looked, and he was in the game, in the goal box, And then he wasn't there, and he was nowhere to be found. And we thought it was a magic trick, but then I knew this kid a little bit from practices, and I knew there were woods behind the goal. And he had left the goal and had gone into the woods back here, and he had no intention to come back out. So I, in the game, had to go into the woods and find the child and bring him out to the field. I I remember my, my second oldest daughter, Claire, In the middle of the game, she's on the field running and playing, and she just makes a beeline for me on the sideline, and I'm going, oh, no, she got hurt, or she got her feelings hurt or something, but she runs over to me, and she goes, hey, Dad, like, what? What, What's going on? And I'm watching the game, watching the kids. She goes, can I come off and sit down and play with Katori right now? I'm like, what are you doing? Get on the field. The game is playing. Go. You don't leave the field while the game is still going on. And then the third rule for, for 6U or little kids soccer is there, there is such a thing as positions. And, and I mean, you can play, we don't have to get overcomplicated, but if a few of you could stay back in the backfield and just be alert and ready and not chase the ball everywhere it goes, play a little bit of defense will be okay. Or if the goalkeeper could stay out of the woods and in the box, like... We might make it through this day without, you know, total embarrassment. We might be okay, right? And I tell you this because when I read the book of Titus, I think that's the exact same approach that Paul takes with Titus in the churches in Crete. He wants them to learn these same three lessons that I'm teaching kids, that there is a right way to run when it comes to Christianity and how you do church. And it's not whichever way you want. There is a a right way and a goal that you're shooting on, that you're headed towards. 
He wants them to know you're not supposed to leave the field early. You stay on the field as long as the game is in play. And he wants them to know that there are such a thing as positions. And it's important to know and to play your position in the church. And as we read the text, I want you to see if you can find these three rules implied or implicitly throughout the text. See if I'm just crazy or or, or if it's kind of there. So Titus Titus chapter 2 is where we'll be starting in verse 1. Paul writes, and he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men, go ahead and raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to make you raise your hand if you're an older man. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in solid and perseverance. Older women, I'm not even going to go there. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine, teaching what is good. I hear you laughing. (laughs) Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Young men, I mean, this is the hardest thing to do, to do when you're a young man. Just con- true confession here. Sensible seems like such a simple thing, but it's so hard to be. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is a b- beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing, nothing bad to say about us. This is a message to the church about how we view ourselves. It's identity first before it's mission. It's how we view ourselves and and the constructs and the, the things that have been placed upon us, what people have said about us for being old or young, married or not, whatever situation that you're in. It's about how we view ourselves and then how we do life together as the church. And Paul's writing to Titus, he needed to to teach the the Cretan Christians, it's not enough just to believe rightly. It's not enough only to intellectually assent to certain doctrines, certain ideas about God or about ethics, but you have to believe according to that, you have to behave according to that belief. It's not enough just to believe rightly, but you have to behave according to right beliefs. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you saw the rules. Did you see the three rules kind of implied in the text? They're there. You got to run the right way. Don't leave the field while the game is still going on. And there is a, such a thing as a position to play. Let's look at these. First rule. First rule is what? Run the right way. There's a right way to church. And I'm using it as a verb. There is a right way to church to do and to be and to function as a church. And it's not any way you want. It starts with, not behavior, it starts with what? It starts with belief. Look at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Another translation says, communicate the behavior which belongs with healthy teaching. Listen to that. Communicate the behavior that belongs with, that goes with healthy teaching. Don't just have words, have actions that support those words. In other words, Paul's saying, Christian Christ-like character, 
Christ-like conduct must travel with sound doctrine. You don't have just the doctrine in mind, but you have the whole life being transformed. It's not enough that we only believe rightly, but we must behave rightly. But what does Paul mean about sound doctrine? What's he referring to? Is it a, a core set of doctrines? Is it uh, an end times view or theory? Is it, I mean, what specifically is Paul talking about when he says your behavior ought to be in accordance with sound teaching? Well, he starts with belief. He says your behavior belongs with sound teaching. And then he begins to give a bunch of words and instructions calling people up to live and to act in certain ways according to doctrine. And he capstones it or he bookends it with verse 11. Look at that. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What is the sound doctrine that Paul is talking about? talking about the doctrine of salvation. He's talking about the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying everything in your life should be oriented around the grace of God given to you in salvation in Jesus Christ. It should mark every facet of your life. It should inform and produce and and reveal a new way for you to go. And all of your doing and all of your being should be marked by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So pause. I want you to do this. I want you to think about for a moment three things. I want you to think about the beauty and the glory of the God who saved you, which is bigger than you could ever like put into a moment of considering it, but begin to think in that direction. Think about the beauty and the glory of the God who saved you. And then think about the, the price that he paid for your sin. And to keep that locked in your mind. And then I want you to think about to where he is taking you and what he is making of you. So three things. The beauty and the glory of the God who saved you. The price that he paid for your sin. And to where he is taking you and what he is making of you. With that locked into your mind, now live in accordance with all of that. Is this simple? And it's a thing to be applied individually and corporately. Like individually, you're going, well, how am I going to use my finances? Am I going to buy this or am I going to wait? Am I going to take on this debt or not take on this debt? Are we going to endure tough times in our marriage? Are we going to say, see you later, this didn't work? Are we going to say, I give up, I can't deal with this kid anymore? Are we going to deal with it? I mean, it can be smaller things. You know, how am I going to use my time when I am on vacation this year? Lock into your mind the beauty and the glory of the God who saved us, the price he paid for your sins and what he's making of you and where he's taking you and then act in accordance with that. You do that as a church when we come together. You do that when you gather with a small group or when you go on a mission trip or to work with a local mission partner or when you go, hey, my neighbor doesn't know Christ and I desperately want them to know Christ. And so group, surround us with your prayers and surround us with your love. You think on these things and then you live and you decide and you speak in accordance with these things. Remember, we talk about this around here a lot. We talk about how Christianity is from, not for. Can you say that? From, not for. And what I mean is we don't live for God's acceptance. We don't live for his forgiveness, or in other words, to earn our salvation or earn our place with God. We live from a place of forgiveness in Jesus Christ from 
being accepted by the living God because we've placed our life in Jesus' hands. We've, we're living, Christianity is living from a place of being lavishly loved and generously gifted and perfectly providentially placed where you are for redeeming work. But we forget that. We, we forget it all the time. We forget it. Maybe we forget it just because we're good at forgetting, which is true. <laughs> Maybe we forget it because it is hard for us to really fathom that we've been so deeply loved. We can intellectually assent to it, go, yes, I read the Bible and it says I've been so loved, but I don't, I don't really, I don't get it. I mean, how could the God who made the universe really, I say it, I espouse it, but how could he really know the inner workings of my life and heart? And my goodness, the things that I have done, the things that I'm still wrestling with and still doing, how could his grace cover all of that? And it hasn't changed us in an effectual way. Or maybe there's another reason we forget. And if you look at verse 1 again, it starts with the words, but as for you. So that means before this, there's been another group that he's talked about that have reacted in a different way to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says to the church, but as for you, live this way, but there are others also in mind. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 10, he writes about people in Crete, some of them who, in the name of God even, they were empty talkers and deceivers, what does that mean? Well, the, the Greek for empty talkers means they spoke nonsense, <laughs> which we don't know anything about people speaking nonsense in culture today, do we? No, clearly a great deal of nonsense is daily being thrust at us as, uh, in guise of religion or spirituality or philosophy or science, and daily we are just overwhelmed with torrents of nonsense. And Paul says in Crete, that's how it was. There, was. there were people who were empty talkers. It was a bunch of nonsense. They said it in the name of God. They said, oh, there's power in this. Oh, this takes you where you need to go. But it was just, it was bunk. It was nothing. And then he says there were deceivers. And we talked about this a lot in our First John series. We talked about false teaching. We talked about twists and distortions where you take a little bit of something that's right but then you just move it a little bit and it really moves people's faith from dependence on Christ alone to something else maybe Jesus plus Jesus and or maybe it begins to move Jesus more and more to the margins it was the spirit of the antichrist that we learned about so I won't go deeper into that today other than to say this listen to this false teachers are soul deceivers they don't just twist your mind because we know we're fighting a spiritual battle. We talk about that all the time in Ephesians. It talks about Ephesians 6, that we're not just fighting against schemes of men, of human beings. We're fighting a spiritual battle. And where there are idols and where there is, is false teaching, there are, there are spirits, there are demons at work. So he says, false teachers are soul deceivers. They're empty talkers and deceivers. And that's what Paul's on. And then he says one more thing. There are those who are teaching the things they should not for the sake of sordid gain. In other words, not only was their message wrong, but their motives were completely impure. They, they presented as if they were speaking for your good or for God's glory, but that's not what their motive was. They didn't have God's glory in mind at all, and they weren't doing anything for anyone else's good. They were speaking really for their own glory. They would use any platform that they could 
to try to raise more personal power and more personal influence over other people in their community. And the result of this is that the church was becoming polluted in their outward uh, view of the world, in their inward values of themselves and what Christ had left them for, and they're quickly becoming an unfruitful church. And so Coach Paul steps in and he blows the whistle and he says, everybody gather up and listen. The gospel of Jesus Christ fuels and empowers and creates in you everything that you need to know, everything that you could ever have that is right and healthy for your soul and for your life. It's all found in the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it should mark everything in your life. Remember, Paul's the guy who would write about how the Holy Spirit creates an all-new presence, an all-new creature in you when you believe in faith on Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, in Christ, you're a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. You're not this person anymore. You're a new creature. And people around you, he writes to the Corinthians, he says, people around you think, think we're crazy. Why? Because our ideas don't fit with the world's ideas. Our values don't fit with the world's values. And we're doing things that, that are, are powerful and are potent against the schemes of the devil. And people go, these guys are nuts. There's something weird about them. He goes, I don't know if it's crazy or nuts, but I can tell you what it is. It's that the love of Christ controls us. Everything, the love of Christ controls us. So we don't even see according to the flesh anymore. We see according to the Spirit. And everything we see, every moment we act, we have this lens of of God is at work through the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ in His people is at work in this world. And so now we don't live for just ourselves. Paul says we live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. And then he makes a statement. He says, so who we are and what we do Well, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ in this world. That's who we are in every place, in every position. That's what the church is in this world. That's why we're here and not there yet. That's why we're waiting still for his return because we are his ambassadors, empowered by his spirit to have spiritual eyes and lives marked with the gospel that he would use us to turn the world on its head So there is a right way to church. Paul says this is the right way to go. And and if you look at the language here, um, in verse 1 through 8, he starts with you should behave according to right beliefs. And then he he begins calling people up. I'm not going to say calling out, but calling them up. Rise up to this. Be temperate. Be dignified. Be sensible. Be sound and solid in faith and love and perseverance. And he calls up another group and says, you be reverent in your behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And to another group, he calls them up and says, be sensible, be pure, be workers at home, be kind. And why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So the way that you go as a church, when people are looking in and and watching us, it would be consistent with the way the gospel enters and moves and changes in your life. That what we do would be a reflection of what Jesus has done in us. Run the right way is the call to the church. What was the second rule? You remember it? Don't leave the field while the game is still going on, right? Right? And Paul begins to call up a certain group. 
And, and I, I, uh, I'll make a point how he gets to every group along the way in a moment. But he starts with, if you look at verse 2 and 3, older men and older women. And I'm, I'm going to go through the room now, and I'm going to have you raise your hand if I think you're older. Ready? If you think you're older, I want you to hear this encouragement from Pastor Warren Wearsby. I, I read this, and I, my heart pounds with agreement with this statement. He said, one of the strongest forces for faithful ministry in the church lies with the older members. Okay, I, I need you to hear that. Because our culture celebrates so much youthful enthusiasm that we sometimes don't understand the strong force and stability of our church lies with the older members. And I know this, I'm hyper aware that I'm coming to this from Titus's place. Like the letter could be written from Paul to me in a way. I'm from his perspective on life. I'm a younger pastor. And Paul writes to Titus and says, you must deliver this message to your older members. And what's the message? Look at the end of verse 2. What's the word there? Persevere is the word. He says to Titus, look at your older members and tell them to persevere, to endure, to press on, to not leave the field early. Don't leave the field while the game is still going on. And look, I can't speak as a person who has retirement in view, not even close at this point in my life. I can speak as a person who has served in churches for a couple of decades and has been married 18 years and has four kids, and I can tell you that has made me dog tired. And so I have a lot of life to go, and I'm going, I'm out of steam on a lot of days. I can speak from that perspective, but I can't speak from the perspective of looking at, I've got four kids that we've spread out really far. Like retirement isn't a concept that I can even conceive of. Do you get that? Four daughters, four weddings. Yeah, are you with me yet? Four colleges. But I do know in relationships I've had with older church members that there comes a time when you begin to look at retirement and you begin to consider what happens next. I've asked the question, I've said, gosh, retirement's coming soon. What are you going to do? Have you thought about it? What, what have you been dreaming about? And you get different responses to that question, different answers. Some will say, I'm just looking for a break. I'm tired. I'm done. You have others who go, I've always wanted to, and then you fill in the blank and they say that. And more often than not, I, I get the response that just is, I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. I'm going to need to find out who I am when I'm not at work is really the answer. And, and so here, here's the thing that, that I've seen over and over again. There are people who, whether they intend to or not, there are many people who enter empty nest or retirement age who begin to coast. And they think, well, I've done what I'm going to do. I've, I've run the race. I have accomplished the task, right? Or whatever I was going to do and didn't get done, it didn't get done by now, so it's done. I'm not saying everyone does this. I'm be very clear about that. But I am saying everyone is tempted by this. Everyone is tempted by this. I raised my kids. I did the hard work. They're productive members of society, or maybe someday they will be. But I, I did my thing, and now it's time to rest. I, I want to tell you about a few people. I want to pause and, and, and just tell you about a few people in my life who I've seen go the other way. When they came to retirement, I'll tell you about my dad first. My dad, when he retired, had every ability to go, I'm going to spend the rest of my days relaxing or building a new kingdom or a bigger kingdom for myself. I could start more businesses. I could spend all my days traveling. 
But what my dad did with, I don't, even, I don't even know that he caught oxygen before he did it. He looked around and he said, what are the needs in my community? What are the needs in my church? And he found a like-minded friend in the church and they realized that there were many people in their church and in their community who were either in poverty or who were widows, or who had moved into a a time of life where their physical ability was failing. And the church was called Hampton Road, so they started the road crew. And these two men who had now retired began spending their days and their weeks going into people's homes and retrofitting their house for uh, uh, wheelchair ramps or safety rails or whatever they needed, or if it was a family dealing with poverty who had, you know, an unsafe floor, rebuilding the floor for them, or doing whatever was needed to bless the people of their community with the love of Christ in very practical ways. Did they do it for glory? Absolutely not. Did it take a lot of time? Some weeks, five hours, some weeks, I think 45 hours. But why would he go and do that when he finally hit retirement? Because you don't leave the field while the game is still going on, right? My mom, she raised her boys. She got us out of the house Somewhat productive members of society were still, you know, watching me, but, but she did the hard work. And when we were in kids' ministry, volunteered in kids' ministry, made, everything, made sure they had everything they needed. When we were in student ministry, her eyes and her heart and her prayers were on the student ministry. Then was helping lead the college ministry with my dad and for years led that ministry in our church. Now I've earned my break. I'm done. But no. You don't leave the field while the game's still going on. So she looks and says, maybe I should come back down to the beginning and start with preschoolers and kindergartners and teach Sunday school. Why? Not only so that I can bless them, but so maybe as I love these children, I can know their parents and be an encouragement to them when they need it in a season of life that I've lived in before. And it wasn't just about showing up on Sunday morning. It was about preparing your lesson and preparing your craft and praying for these families and being a source of light and hope for these children and their families. I'll tell you about one more. Dennis Perry was my youth minister and Lindsay's youth minister. He did our wedding, um, and Dennis was for me um, kind of like another spiritual parent, um, like a Paul to a Timothy or a Titus. He was a mentor and a, a friend. And, and when I have, a, have like a mental breakdown happening in ministry, he's the guy I call. And a month ago, Dennis passed away, and it was due to COVID. And he was in the hospital for a couple of weeks before he passed away. And I would talk with his wife, Patricia, and, and she would say, the chaplain keeps coming in to see Dennis to encourage him and read scripture and ask how he can pray for him. And Dennis won't let the chaplain ask any questions like that because he cuts him right off and says, how are you doing, friend? You got a heavy load on your shoulders today? Has it been hard today here at the hospital? How can I pray for you? Tell me about your family. Why? Until he lost the capacity to speak. Because you don't leave the field while the game is still going on. And he wouldn't. And I'm not foolish enough to set an age for old. I won't put a number to it. But if you feel that you fit that category, or if you see those days coming in front of you, please hear me. We need you to lead the way in serving. We need you to set the example, to mentor young men and young women in this church, to live Christ-like lives and to have Christ-like careers and Christ-like families and Christ-like aspirations with our life. 
And, and you, I've said this kind of thing before, and, and some of you have come back and said, but I don't know how to do that, or what's my next step, or no one's asking me for advice. I want you to think back to when you were a young man or young woman. I want you to think back to the reality that when you're young, it's true in all of life, but especially when you're a young adult, you don't know what you don't know, right? And we don't ask for help. One reason is because we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> and if somehow we become exposed to the fact that we're weak in an area or there's something we don't know, we're kind of ashamed or embarrassed at first that we didn't know that thing. And so we don't want to expose ourselves any further for not knowing or if it's not that, it's because we don't know that we're able to ask. We're afraid that we don't have passport into your life. Guess what? We're probably, probably not. I mean, like 95 times out of 100, not going to come and say, hey, will you mentor me? But we need to say it. And so we need you. We need you to endure. We need you to persevere. We need you to get creative. We need you to be bold. We need you to lead well. And we will follow you when you do that. We will follow you. When you do that, when you are sensible and temperate and dignified and solid in faith and love and perseverance, we will desire, our hearts will pound to follow your example. I love the story of Simeon and the story of Anna in Luke 2. One of my favorite stories I shared at Christmas a couple of years ago, Simeon was an older man who had endured the period of, uh, much of the period of silence. He's older. Remember, there were 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He lived in this time coming right up into our New Testament, and he was an older man. He depended on the Holy Spirit. He desired to be obedient to the will of God, and he, his heart's greatest desire was to see the, the hope of Israel, the Messiah, come and he waited on this, actively praying and desiring and seeking to be in the heart of God's will in his life. Anna was an 84-year-old woman. She had lost her husband decades ago and in a society where for that she would have really been marginalized and lost her whole identity and place in this world. She dedicated herself to service in the temple. She's 84 at the point of Luke 2. Day and night fasting and serving and praying in the temple. And in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph, eight days after Jesus was born, take the baby Jesus to the temple to present him. And guess who's the first to see him? It's the old man, Simeon. Simeon recognizes him. He didn't just see this as a baby. He goes, God is good. He has come just as he said he would. And he begins to praise the baby Jesus. And he begins to speak wisdom into his parents, into Mary and Joseph. Luke 2, behold, this child, he scoops him in his arms. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And he looks at Mary and Joseph. He says, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon saw the gospel. So Simeon declares the gospel. And Simeon looks at this young couple and says, I'm going to speak truth and life into your heart today. And then there's Anna, 84-year-old Anna. She's shuffling across the temple complex, and she sees this take place, and she recognizes too, this is him. Hope has come. Verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to who? To all of those, to everyone who, were look, who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. That means she's the first evangelist, y'all. This 84-year-old woman who will not leave the field until the game is over recognizes and becomes the first evangelist 
after the Messiah has come, running and telling everyone, he's here. So what I want you to hear is Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair, listen to that, get just a little bit right here. Gray hair is a crown of glory It is gained in a righteous life. So wear it well for the glory of God, just like Simeon and just like Anna. Stay in the game until the game is over. Second rule, third rule, last one, and then then we'll make some sense of this and close it. It is important to know and play your position. We talked about older saints. Let's talk to the younger saints also. Verse 6, likewise, Urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And hang on, go back to verse 4. Older women are to encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers when they're at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Okay, pause here. What does Paul mean by these comments about the Christian home? I want to pause here because you and I both know that there have been people, some people have misused and abused this line and others like it to put a hand of oppression on young women in a way that Paul didn't intend when he wrote this at all. So let me tell you what this doesn't mean first. I do not believe Paul is saying young women cannot have or should not have a job out of the home. I do not believe that's Paul's intent at all. It's not the thing on his mind when he writes this. It's a different world and construct even, right? He does not say that. I do not believe it. I also don't believe that Paul's message that he's conveying is you should stay home, work hard, and be quiet. I do not believe, in case somebody sound bites me and puts me on the news, I do not believe That's what Paul intends to say or convey at all in this text. So what does Paul mean when he makes these comments about the home? Well, I want you to think about this, how the Christian home is a completely new and novel thing. Like, it's a totally new concept in the world, the Christ-centered home. And young men and young women who are being saved out of paganism all throughout Crete have to have a complete worldview shift about what does it mean to be married and what does it mean to have children? What should our home look like? And this is one of those places where the world's values and the kingdom values are in such an utter stark contrast from one another that it has to be painted out plainly that Christ-like love, I mean gritty, sacrificial, sustaining, and, and consistent love that endures should mark the Christian home. It should be the greatest priority in the home. Christ-like love should characterize every interaction in the home. The message here is a gospel message. And the message says that the primary goal in your home should not be self-fulfillment, to fulfill yourself, but your primary objective or goal at home should be to faithfully serve the Lord in your family. And that's hard, Right? that your primary goal in the home is to give off Christ-like love to those people that you're trapped with within four walls. (laughs) And when that entails sacrifice, and it will always entail sacrifice, we sang about this, or I guess it was on the screens during our song this morning, when it entails sacrifice, you do so joyfully. You embrace it joyfully, like Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. This is a really hard lesson 
It's a really hard lesson that your, your primary goal and your, your answers for self-fulfillment isn't found in self-actualization. It's a hard message in 2021. It's not in finding yourself and, and being your best you. Your primary goal, goal and the place that Christ fulfills you is living like Jesus and loving like Jesus wherever he has you. And if God is sovereign, then he knows where he has you. He's placed you exactly where you are in season. And again, this is where you, you older saints are vital to us because you know something that we're still trying to figure out. You know that the days are long, that the years are what? Short, right? And that's something that we don't understand yet. And it's you who have spoken into my life when I feel like I can't get oxygen and you have brought wisdom and you have brought comfort and you have brought remembrance of things that matter when I feel like I'm running out of steam. Look at verse 9. Urge bondservants to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. It's the same if you're at home, if you're in the community, if you're at work, even if you're an oppressed and marginalized person in society, it's the same thing. If God is sovereign, and He is, then He knows where you are, He knows what you're going through, and He intends to use you in the season and the place that you're in to, and this is such a a strange statement, to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. He says, says, right living adorns the gospel of God. What does that mean? Well, the word adorn means decorate. It doesn't mean adding or subtracting from the message of the gospel at all. What it means is you highlight the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You shine a light on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's one thing to declare a verse, but it's another thing for the world outside, people who are unbelieving, to see your life and to see us as a church and see not only do we have words, but we have lives that back up words and that our character and our manners are consumed with the grace of God, that the love of Christ does control us. And they go, they're kind of crazy, but they're kind of crazy that I kind of love. And and I want to know more about. That's what it means to adorn the, do- the gospel of God. And, and you've got to remember that, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. doesn't need us. But when we live in accordance with what we believe, it really looks beautiful to a world outside. And when we live like the rest of the world, it gives them a wrong picture. It shapes their mind wrongly for who God is and what he is like. So us and you and you and us together, wherever you are, live in accordance with what you believe. That's how the gospel gets to every nook and cranny of this world. And in Titus 2, we're encouraged to have a life that's so marked by the gospel that we run the right way, which is the Christ-like way, that we don't leave the field while the game is still going on. We recognize we've been left here with a purpose, and it's an important purpose. And there's a day ahead that we're being brought to, but for now, we press on that people might see the light and the grace of God through us, right? And it's important that we know when we play our positions, all of us. It's about mundane things. Do you realize this? It's about being old or young. 
It's about being married or not married, maybe having kids or not, maybe having a job or not, being in a place of power or being in, in a place of oppression. It's about wherever you are, just the social constructs that you find yourself within, wherever you are demonstrating and living by the grace of God. What if I told you that that's your best witness? The ordinary, mundane things. That that is the best place and the best method of sharing the gospel. Being married in a Christ-like way. Going to work in a Christ-like way. Having conflict in a Christ-like way. <laughs> having social media in a Christ-like way. I, I'm not sure if I can figure that one out yet. In a Christ-like way, social media. Struggle with that. You know, it, it is fascinating how ordinary the instructions are. But the purpose of this was what? It was for Titus to be able to build and organize and grow a church that wouldn't only survive their day, but would move into our day. And he roots it in the most basic, ordinary things of life because he knows that faithful people in ordinary things will change the world if it has an extraordinary purpose. And miraculous power is at work when we give our lives over to, to the gospel in everything. I'm reminded of, of the story a pastor told that there's two ways to grow roses. Have you heard this before? You can either tape roses to the bush and it looks good, it looks right as people pass by or from a distance, but we know there's no life in it and it just does this pretty quickly. Or you plant rose seeds in good ground and they do well in direct sunlight, so you make sure they're in the light and you water them well, you nourish them well, and you watch them grow and flourish and they, they take over <laughs> is what they do. Let's be a church that is so well planted in the ground of the gospel, walking in the light, nourished by the Spirit, that what naturally grows in us is a beauty in our church that stands out in the world. And may God use that to turn our community upside down. Would you pray with me? And fathers, we move into this study over the next I guess seven weeks after this, I pray uh, that you would help our minds and hearts to, to see things in a new way, believe things in a new way, and to love things in a new way. Would you, in us, create beautiful gospel change, that we would delight in that thing you call abundant life, but that we also would adorn the gospel so that people around us would desire to know you? And not turn away and say, oh, I don't want to know that, God, because those people are awful. But they would say, what a beautiful community. I want to know their God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to this and to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.